0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Calvary Monterey, great to be with you again. Uh, once again, not as we'd like to be together, but at least we have an opportunity through technology to be able to continue on in God's word. And I just want you to know that I'm convicted that whatever form of technology is at our disposal, we will use for the dis- the uh, distribution of God's word, uh, even if it came down to it and they Took away our internet cables and uh, we couldn't stream a service. I would write these sermons out to you. I would get your addresses. We would mail them to you via the United States Post Office. Uh, The the word has got to keep going forward. So praise God, we have our Bibles. We can get into the word. And uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three. Last week, of course, we. Went over to Romans chapter 8 for a little time for uh, celebrating Easter Sunday, the resurrection. I thought it was a wonderful time, a wonderful service, and uh, it was great to celebrate with you in a very different kind of way uh, this year. Hey, listen, I wanted to talk to you for a second before we get into Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35, and a little message I've called, Believe the Right Things About Jesus. I just wanted to talk to you as your pastor about the plans for our church uh, moving forward. Of course, our governing authorities are beginning to have conversations about laying out guidelines regarding uh, reopening uh, the nation, the community, the economy, you know, things like that. So what about the reopening of the church? Well, of course, there are so many things that we just don't know at this point. It seems that uh, day by day, week by week, we're getting more guidelines from the governing authorities on uh, what we cannot do, what we can do, what best practices are, and what things we just have to make sure that we adhere to. So at this point, as of this weekend, we really don't know enough to say this is the plan. Even our own governor this last week said, hey, let's stick with the uh, stay-at-home order, and in a couple of weeks, he'll get back to us and lay out some more concrete plans. So on one hand, nothing new to report. We just need to wait for the governing authorities, our governor, our local community uh, health department, uh, and the federal level to communicate to us on where we're supposed to go. And I I hope and pray there's not too much of a conflict between uh, those various levels. But there are some things I did want to communicate to you today uh, that we're fairly certain of that we know that we'll do uh, in the months and even throughout the rest of this year. The first one is that I wanted to let you know that we've already committed for the rest of 2020 to continue an online campus for our church. Um, in the same format that we're delivering it to you today. Now, I'm not saying, please don't mishear me, I'm not saying that that means that for sure we're not going to be meeting in the flesh in any capacity, but even if we're allowed to with social distancing measures and with a cap on numbers and things like that, at some point in the future, we are still going to maintain this online presence uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, we think we'll need it. We also think that many people with pre-existing conditions will choose it, and perhaps some will even choose it just out of preference, uh, given uh, the fears and worries and just you know common sense wisdom uh, regarding the possibility of catching COVID-19. So we're going to continue uh, this service in this online format for you and your family, even if and when we get a chance to gather back together uh, on our church campus. The second thing I wanted to tell you is that for the rest of this year, 2020, uh, we are likely going to hold the Tuesday night church service exclusively, only online. A part of the reason for this is that, um, you know, obviously, Everything is up in the air. We're going to have to be quick and flexible whenever directives come down from the governing authorities. And in a lot of ways, our volunteer team is going to be in flux uh, whenever that day comes. And so our team really feels compelled to just focus whenever that moment comes on the Sunday gatherings and any creative things that we need to do on our campus to have some semblance of a gathering. And we'd rather not overextend ourselves by also simultaneously trying to figure out how to do that on Tuesday nights as well. So we're just going to remain steadfast in those Tuesday night church services, but in an exclusively online format, uh, likely for the rest of 2020. The third thing I wanted to tell you beyond Sundays and Tuesdays is that we are planning to follow the guidelines and the directives of the governing authorities. Uh, I don't feel that I'm in a position where uh, I could be the one to weigh in on when it's safe or not safe for us to gather. Uh, We are going to look to our governing authorities to make those decisions for us with the caveat that we'll do it as long as uh, they aren't being discriminatory against churches in any way. And of course, you've probably read the news. There have been a handful of moments where governing authorities have been discriminatory towards churches but have even corrected themselves. It's just been a handful of cases just like there's been a handful of cases where churches have ignored the governing authorities. Our plan though is to follow and respect the guidelines that are given to our community uh, from our local state and federal levels. And part of the reason I want you to know that is because in a church our size there are bound to be Uh, some of you who would like us to be more conservative than the governing authorities. Um, You know, uh, if if they allow for groups of up to 250, there are some of you who would want us to say, you know, it just, that doesn't seem safe. So we're going to go even less than that. And I just want you to know, we're going to look to the governing authorities for guidelines and do as much as they would allow us to do so we won't be more conservative than their guidelines but there will be some of you who also would like us to be more aggressive than their guidelines you'll you'll think to yourself perhaps that uh it's important for us to be obedient to God rather than man. That might be the logic that's rolling around uh, in your mind. And you might want us to go beyond what the governing authorities allow for us. And we don't want to do that either. We just want to go as far as they say is safe for organizations like ours uh, to go. And uh, so I just wanted to let you know that. I know some of you have read the news and seen various pastors who have defied the state and all of that. And uh, on this issue, there might be other issues down the line in the life of this church where uh, I am in defiance of the state. But I cannot imagine for the life of me that this is going to be. Uh, one of those subjects. So like I said, as long as it's not discriminatory towards churches, we're going to comply with the governing authorities, be good citizens. We believe this is our way to love God and also love our neighbor uh, as ourselves. So I'm sorry for the preamble, but I just wanted to give you a little sense of where we're going. And, you know, for me, I just wanted to let you know, I am excited about these times. I'm not excited Uh, about the difficulty and the chaos and the hurt and the pain that so many people are enduring. I'm sure by this point, many of you know someone who has contracted COVID-19. I know that I do. And I'm sure that you or many of the people you know uh, have been massively economically uh, hurt through this experience. And I am not celebrating any of that in any kind of way. I just know that in times like these, God can do some of his best work at sanctifying and growing his people. And so I'm praying that that's what would occur. And and so in that sense, I'm excited about the God that we believe in, who takes the bad and he uses all things together for good, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So this is who we believe in. We believe in a God who takes the bad and produces something beautiful in the midst of that chaos. And I believe that God is going to do the same in so many of our lives through this very dark moment, this very dark season in our history. Okay, with that as the preamble, I'd like to get into the word today. So if you turn to Mark chapter 3, let's get back into our study of the gospel of Mark together. Could, Could you pray with me as I lift this time up to the Lord? Lord, please, would you speak to us today from your word? Our hearts, Lord, our prayers go out to every person that we know or don't know in our church community who has really been walking through the valley of the shadow of death during this season, whether it's economic trial or loneliness as they don't have family or friends around them and they're isolated, or even, Lord, sickness. We pray, Father, and ask that you would watch over them. Lord, that you would care for them. Lord, that you would speak to them. And Lord, that you would bring brothers and sisters in Christ to love on them during this season. We commit now, Lord, our time in the word into your hands. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to start today by reading the first couple of verses, which declare to us the scene that we're about to look at in the gospel of Mark. It says in verse 20 of Mark chapter three, then he, that being Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Okay, so this is the bizarre backdrop to the episode that we're about to enter into. And Mark sets up our next scene by pointing out two separate groups. Number one, Jesus's family, and number two, the scribes. But before looking at each group and their response to to Christ, Mark is clear to point out that both of them were reacting to Jesus at this time. Uh, The the reason that they were reacting to Jesus was because of the crowds. Uh, Jesus here had gone back to his home in Capernaum. This is likely Peter's house, and the crowds had gathered around him afresh. And just to remind you, Mark does not think highly of the crowds. Uh, They disrupted Jesus' ability to teach and minister openly. They drove him out into the wilderness areas. He even had to have a little escape boat ready because they pressed in upon him. They are presented as problematic because they are usually drawn to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They love the miracles, but not the message of Christ. And here, the crowd is presented as an incessant group with nonstop needs. Jesus and his disciples, Mark records, did not even have time to eat. Their margin that they would use for prayer or for fellowship or for rest was spoken for by the multitudes. Okay, Mark says that when Jesus' family heard about that, they went out to seize Jesus in verse 21, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, now in verse 21, some of your translations will say that it was Jesus' own people who made this statement that he was out of his mind. And the reason why there are other renderings, other versions that say his people instead of his family is because the Greek that Mark used actually is a little bit unclear. Quite literally, it just means Jesus's own heard what was happening. They heard about the crowds. So we know that he's talking about Jesus's own people, but who are these people? Uh, But later in the passage, at the end of our teaching today, we're going to learn that it's Jesus's own family. Eventually, in verse 31, his mother and his brothers are going to show up and try to remove him from the crowd. So that's why some translators say it that way, because it can safely be said that it was his family who were repulsed when they saw the massive crowds. Uh, The fact that he wasn't eating and the hostility of the religious leaders. Uh, They concluded, at least temporarily, that Jesus was out of his mind. Now, they're not always going to feel this way. In fact, all of them, Mary and Jesus' brothers, they're eventually going to become pillars in the early church. But at this point, on this day, they thought that Jesus was crazy. But it's not just the family of Jesus who object to his popularity, but also in verse 22, the scribes, they also object. And these aren't any run-of-the-mill scribes either. These are scribes who came down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being on a mountaintop. Anytime you go from Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. And when these scribes arrived, it's interesting They could not deny that Jesus had power. They could not deny his miracles. They'd watched him deliver the demonized. People who were previously mad under demonic influence were being made whole by Jesus. No one could deny his power. So the scribes, they felt that they needed to explain that power that they were all witnessing somehow or some way. So they came up with this wild accusation. They said that Jesus himself was possessed by Beelzebul and that he was casting out demons by the power or the prince of demons. Okay, what does this accusation mean? And also, P.S., who's Beelzebul? Okay, this title, Beelzebul, it either means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the House or Dwelling. Uh, it's it's difficult to pin down with great specificity uh, because throughout history, there have been various spellings of this word and different usages in their day. What's clear, however, is that by Jesus's time, the title, Beelzebul, had been attached to, ascribed to, Satan. So to put it bluntly, They were claiming that Jesus was teaching, healing, and delivering the demonized by Satan's power. It's quite an accusation. Okay, so there you have it. Jesus's family thinks he's out of his mind. The scribes think he's empowered by Satan. And Mark will use this episode to demonstrate how wrong both camps are about Jesus. They believe the wrong things about Christ. And as a result, They are tragically outside looking in. They aren't able to partake, at least in this moment, in Jesus' kingdom because their perspective about him is incorrect. Okay, so how should we use the passage that follows? We should use all the words that are coming in this text to help us discover true things about Jesus, so that we can believe them and find ourselves inside his program. The idea is simple. If you believe the right things about Jesus, you'll experience his power. If you believe the wrong things about him, you won't. So let's believe the right things about Jesus. So let me show you three things to believe about Jesus from this passage, starting with the next movement in verse 23. Read it with me. It says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Okay, first here, Jesus asked a straightforward question. In verse 23, he asked, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, why would Satan be the one to destroy Satan's work? Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the great deceiver of the nations. He's been lying from the beginning. And Jesus came along doing the exact opposite of Satan in every way. He didn't bind people, but freed them. He didn't destroy people, but made them whole. He didn't lie to them, but spoke the truth. He didn't hate people, but he loved them. Everything Jesus did was casting out Satan. Obviously, he was at odds with Satan's influence. And to make this point, Jesus told three short parables, or Uh, Short proverbial sayings. The first two parables are really similar. Uh, In the first of these two, a kingdom divided itself cannot stand. And in the second, a house divided against itself is not able to stand. Both these ideas are political in nature. Let me tell you what I mean. A divided kingdom is at war with itself. Uh, Israel knew about this from their history. There were unfortunate moments in their past where they turned on themselves. Most notably, after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became the king, a man named Jeroboam led a rebellion and took the ten northern tribes for himself. It was a sort of civil war or civil divorce in Israel where one nation became two. It was a divided kingdom. A divided house, on the other hand, uh, likely doesn't imply uh, you know, two, uh, a married couple bickering in their home or something like that, which I'm sure that many of you out there who are married can relate during this season of sheltering in place, but likely what's happening is a divided house implies the division of not just a home, but of a royal family. And again, this kind of royal division was not uncommon on the pages of Israel's history. Okay, Jesus's point with these first two parables, the divided kingdom and the divided home or royal home, was to illustrate that Satan's kingdom was not collapsing because of internal division. There was no civil war in Satan's ranks. But why was Jesus's kingdom collapsing? I mean, That's what they were all witnessing, demons being cast out, uh, love beginning to flow, victory and healing occurring. They were watching people go from darkness to light, from death to life, and from brokenness to wholeness. How could all of that be explained? For that, we have to turn to Jesus's third parable. Let's read it in verse 27. Jesus said, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, after Jesus debunked the scribe's claim that Jesus was somehow working for Satan, Jesus gave his own explanation for the fall of Satan's kingdom. In this little parable, there's a strong man and he has a house. No one can go in to this strong man's house to plunder his goods. He's too strong. But there's one way that someone could plunder his goods. Someone stronger has to go in first to bind the strong man. And once he's bound, his goods can be plundered. What does Jesus mean with this parable? It's very simple. I'm sure many of you have already gotten the point. Satan is like a strong man with a house full of goods. The goods in his house are human beings, who he's deceived, who he's bound in sin, who he's held captive. But Jesus is stronger than Satan. He came and he began binding Satan so that he could plunder Satan's house. He is setting people free. Okay, what does this teach us about Jesus? I mean, if they were wrong about Jesus and thus outside of Jesus's program what should we believe about Jesus what is the right way for us to think of him here's the first thing number 1 Jesus is an invading force Jesus is an invading force it's just so obvious to the reader of Mark's gospel and we're not even that far into the book Jesus came and immediately, right off the bat in Mark's gospel, began confronting the brokenness and disrepair that Satan had caused. Jesus restored broken lives. He, did, he undid what Satan had done. He helped people. And this is how Jesus sees himself in this little parable. Satan has a kingdom. Satan has a house. And Jesus came to attack and dismantle it. Ultimately, he did this when he died on the cross. There He disarmed Satan. And one day we will see the ultimate disarmament of Satan's forces when they are thrown into the lake of fire that Jesus prepared for them to go into. But the foretaste of Jesus as an invading force has already happened here in the book of Mark. And look, many of you, you know this from personal experience. There was a moment in your life where you were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. You were dead, and now you're alive. Jesus has done great things for you. Like a foreign invader, he came into your life, destroyed Satan's grip on you, and set you free. Now, I've often told the story of my own life, how as a teenager, I was slowly giving Satan control of my life. But the conviction of the Spirit and the love of God would not let me go. And one night, it happened just like Jesus said. Like an invading force, he came in, bound the strong man, and he rescued me. He delivered me by his power and grace. He called me and chose me. In a sense, Jesus plundered me out of the house of Satan. But as much as we rejoice that Jesus has delivered us, I think we should still see him as an invading force. In other words, even after we're born again, we should still envision Jesus as working hard to destroy Satan's stronghold in our lives. You see, Jesus wants to continually deliver us. Recently, I got to start my reading of the New Testament over again. My Old and New Testament bookmarks propel forward. I finished Revelation, went back to Matthew chapter 1. Remember in that chapter, before Jesus was born, the angel spoke to Joseph and said of Jesus in Mary's womb, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why was that the way it was said? Why is Jesus's name connected to the fact that he would save his people from their sins? Well, Jesus, the name Jesus, It's merely a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. Because of this, the original Joshua is a great example. He led Israel into the promised land and won victories over various foreign powers that were ripe for God's judgment. In a similar way, our Joshua, Jesus, he comes along and leads us in victory over various sins In our lives. And personally, I believe this is one of the major opportunities that we're going through in our current time. This is a season where Jesus can grow us as we allow him access into our lives. I I know many people are downplaying the idea that anything productive or good or growth oriented can occur right now. I've even read of some who've said that it's wrong to even talk about personal growth in this season. I've even seen some who have excused uh, overeating or intoxication or the consumption of illicit online material, calling it a way to decompress during times of difficulty. But for the Christian, the answer to all that is no. Instead, we should see Jesus as an invading force who wants to set us free from all that. He wants us to use this time to shape and, and be transformed by his grace. So let's allow him room to do so. Okay, so that's our first big truth about Jesus in this passage. He is an invading force. Let's see what else he has to say. Verse 28, he goes on and says, "'Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin.'" For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, now immediately when we read this passage, uh, most spiritually sensitive believers sit straight up and listen more intently. I mean, Jesus talks here in verse 29 about a sin that can never be forgiven. It's an eternal sin. As some have called it or dubbed it the unpardonable sin now we don't want anyone ourselves included to commit this particular sin whatever it is we want to avoid it it can never be forgiven and over the years many have taught about this potential sin in such an ominous and frightening way so there's a little bit of a dark cloud around this little portion of scripture but before working on our own interpretation of this blaspheming against the holy spirit I think we should notice the more hopeful notes which Jesus introduced uh, throughout this doctrine. He said in verse 28 All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. In other words, before we take note of the warning, we must observe the blessing. In fact, we cannot understand the warning until, unless and until we comprehend the blessing. Jesus came to earth to die for the sin of the whole world. This is incredible grace, you guys. In Jesus, all sins you've ever committed can be forgiven. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus isn't saying that he forces everyone to accept his forgiveness. There there is a sin that keeps someone outside of Christ's forgiveness, but he came to forgive all sin from the children of humanity. Before receiving Jesus's warning to the scribes, we have to celebrate such radical grace. But to understand the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we have to look at the context surrounding Jesus's statement. The scribes knew that Jesus was doing amazing things. The scribes said Jesus did those things by the power of Satan or Beelzebul. Uh, They said he had an unclean spirit. This is why Jesus talked about the danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Notice how Mark says it. In verse 30, he says, For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, the scribes were the ones who were in danger of committing this particular sin. Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River by John. And there, at that moment, the Holy Spirit came to live upon him. The Spirit of God was empowering Jesus' work and ministry. But they said that Jesus was not fueled by the Spirit, but by Satan. The things the Spirit was doing, they said Beelzebul was doing. And Jesus was warning them, you are coming dangerously close to blaspheming the Spirit. And for that, there is no forgiveness. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a position that states that Jesus did not live, did not work, did not die according to the spirit of God's power. In other words, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection were not divinely fueled or empowered. He is, not from the, he is not from the God of the Bible, but must be explained in some other way. To blaspheme the spirit is to reject who Jesus says he is. Furthermore, since it seems the scribes were only in danger of committing this sin, but had not yet gone all the way into committing this sin, it seems that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a finalized position to which a person commits. It's not a random action, like, whoops, I just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No, it's a persistent and immovable attitude. The heart becomes so hard, there is no way that it can shift. To this person, Jesus is not from God. Nothing can move them. Now, I should mention that many sensitive believers over time have wondered if they have somehow, some way, at some time committed this sin. But the nature of the sin is such that if you're worried you've committed it, you most surely have not committed it. Perhaps at some point you are well on your way to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, much like these scribes were on their way to doing this sin. But the mere desire to believe in Jesus is an indicator that you are not guilty of this sin. So if you've ever been part of of a church or a group that has abused this doctrine or put some kind of weird manipulative fear in your heart because of this doctrine, you must get rid of that thought because that is not from the Lord. Okay. In a way, this doctrine, it's nothing new for the Christian. The gospel is there, it is preached, and we have to believe it in order to be saved. But if we say when we hear the gospel that it's not a divine message, that it's not from God, then we cannot tap into the forgiveness that Christ brought. It's disobedience to the gospel that condemns someone. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9. We cannot reject the Spirit's work and witness through Jesus and be saved. It can't happen. You have to believe in Jesus. Okay, all that said, what should we learn of Jesus here? Considering what they wouldn't confess about him, what should we confess about Jesus? Well, number two, I'll say it like this. Jesus came in the Spirit's power. Jesus came in the Spirit's power. You see, these religious leaders, they doubted Jesus's power. They thought it demonic, not divine. Therefore, believers should be on the opposite end of that spectrum. We should confess that Jesus came in the Spirit's Power, we should celebrate his ability and grace and might. Okay, this of course means that we should believe the gospel message, but perhaps it means even more than that. Perhaps believing Jesus was empowered by the Spirit means we should hold his work in the highest regard. And maybe there are times when we inadvertently downplay Jesus' work, we aren't committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When we do those things, it's not a wholesale rejection of Jesus to downplay Jesus' work in our own lives, but the downplaying of his power and his work. I think one major way that believers discredit Jesus' work sometimes is when we refuse to believe that we are new in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come but many believers walk around as if it isn't so they do not do what paul said when when he told us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus instead too many believers see themselves as an old creation alive to sin and dead to God, unable to live in the newness of life that Jesus provides them. But you've got to escape this way of thinking, brother and sister. You are new in Jesus. Rather than walk around thinking you're unforgiven and unable to overcome, reconfess the power of Christ. He's strong, he's good, he does not mess up. And when he got a hold of your life, he was doing a great work. You are a new creation in him. Stop believing that you're destined to failure the same old sins for the rest of your life or hurting other people. You aren't destined to that. Jesus has a new plan for you. So that's our second big truth about Jesus. He came in the Spirit's power. That was how he addressed the scribes. remember though, this passage started with his family growing suspicious of his ways. So let's conclude, let's end our time together by seeing how that particular episode ends in verse 31 to verse 35. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, at the beginning of our story, Jesus' family had decided that he was out of his mind. Remember that? Uh, maybe you can relate a little bit to that, by the way. Maybe your family thinks that your belief in Jesus is nuts. <laughs> if that's the case, you're in good company with Jesus. But Jesus' family shows up. Mary's there. Jesus' brothers are there. Joseph is not mentioned. Uh, He never is during Jesus' adult life, uh, which is one of many handfuls uh, of clues which lead us to think that he's already dead at this point in Jesus' life. But there's the family. They send for Jesus. And the messenger said, your mom and your brothers, they're outside. They're seeking you. And cryptically, Jesus responded, who are my mother and my brothers? A response only Jesus could give. Then Jesus looked up about at those who sat around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, this is meant to be shocking. Mark's gospel is full of outsider-insider language. Some people are in, some people are out. And right now, during this episode, The holy family, so to speak, is out. And the people sitting around listening to Jesus, they are in. It's meant to shock us. It's crazy. So what do we learn of Jesus here? Number three, Jesus made a new family. Number three, Jesus made a new family. All this was a major shift in God's program. You see, from the moment that sin entered the world, God began promising someone who would come and destroy Satan. He would crush the serpent under his feet. He would be a descendant of Eve. He would be a descendant of Seth. He would be a descendant of Noah. He would be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He would be a descendant of David. In other words, the Christ Messiah Savior's biological roots mattered. He had to have the right lineage. He had to have the right genealogy. But now that Jesus has arrived and fulfilled that genealogy, he blows up that model. He's come. So now he makes a new family. He still has plans for Israel, but here he looks around at people he's not biologically related to and says, they're my family. They're doing the will of God as they sit and learn from Jesus. And he considers them his brothers and sister and mothers. Now, this is not Jesus's way of saying that you can earn your position in his family by doing good works, by the way. You know, when he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's pointing to the evidence that his family members show that they're in his family. In other words, when you're regenerated by the Spirit brought into Christ's family, one of the things that you're going to want to do is obey Jesus. It's evidence that you belong to him. As you walk with him, the fruit of the Spirit will develop in your life. Paul said in Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. But by his blood, Jesus made a new family. He created in himself one new humanity. It tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 15. If you belong to Jesus... You belong to Jesus's family. You are in, you belong. So, in our passage today, we learn that Jesus, he's an invading force. Jesus came in the Spirit's power, and Jesus made a new family. Let me conclude with some questions to ask you before I send you on your way. Number one, what weaknesses? Have uniquely popped up in your life during this season? What weaknesses have uniquely popped up in your life during this season? You see, Jesus, being an invading force, he wants to help rescue you from those things. But so often, as we're just going through the normal course and flow of life, uh, we kind of set things up for ourselves so that the worst in us is not brought out all that often. But when our whole rhythm gets disrupted, false gods become exposed, weaknesses in our character become exposed. And rather than grow depressed about them, it's good for us to receive God's grace and say, praise God that this has been exposed. It's an area that Jesus wants to focus in on and deliver me from. Number two, what area of sin are you tempted to think that Jesus can't help you overcome? What area of sin are you tempted to think that Jesus can't help you overcome? You know, here he is as the deliverer. He's the one who is has come by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of the devil. And it's good for us not to have little areas where we think, no, Jesus couldn't reach into that part of my life. Number three, how valuable is your spiritual family, especially compared to your biological family? How valuable to you is your spiritual family, especially compared to your biological family? Now, you might love your biological family. They might be one of the greatest blessings that you have in your life. We're called to honor our father and mother. There's a great blessing there in biological family, but Jesus made a new family. So how valuable is that new family to you? Number four, what does hearing and then obeying Jesus look like in your life? What does hearing and then obeying Jesus look like in your life? Jesus said, these are the people who do the will of God. And they were the people that were sitting around him, hearing him, and then going out and being obedient to him, allegiant to him. So if the process was to sit with Jesus and hear from him and then go out obeying, where is that found in your life? And then number five, How does some of the elements of the Calvary Challenge give Jesus tools to work in your life? How does some of the elements of the Calvary Challenge give Jesus tools with which to work in your life? Just stop to consider that because he surely wants to work in us. God bless you, church. I miss you so much. Thanks for tuning in today and letting me be a part of your Sunday or your week I can't wait to meet you again face-to-face. As John said when he wrote 2nd and 3rd John, I don't want to write to you anymore with paper and ink or with streaming video. I can't wait to meet with you face-to-face. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.